So first of all, welcome to the show, Dr. Paulson. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute delight to have you here today. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's delightful to be here. Yeah, especially as uh, your book is really thought-provoking. Um, I okay. loved it. Yeah, yeah. I did. loved it. I think, you know, a really good place to start is, could you just explain what a psychiatrist is? Because I, I'm not sure people know the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a psychotherapist. Yeah. That makes sense. It's also a bit difficult. Uh, psychiatrists, we are doctors, so we are MDs and we have a medical degree. Psychologists are not doctors, so they, for instance, cannot prescribe medication. Uh, they're trained in psychotherapy like uh, psychiatrists are. So the difference is that we are doctors and they are not. And psychotherapist is really a title that anyone can use. And that's why if you want to look up a psychotherapist, you may end up with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or you end up with the girl next door who okay. thinks that she's very good at talking to people. So a psychiatrist is a higher level of competency because you can also give people drugs. You can say that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense as well then. So... Um, how did you end up becoming a psychiatrist? Was there like some yeah. cathartic moment in your life or was it just you had an interest in it? Well, in the beginning, I actually used to become uh, an internal medicine uh, doctor. Uh, but I thought when I was working at the hospitals that uh, especially being on call was extremely hard. And then I got interested in psychiatry. So what I did was actually that I did one month of psychiatry uh, as a young doctor. And I found out that it was so amazingly exciting to get to know about people's uh, mind yeah. and of course you also learn something about yourself that's uh, also an advantage of being a psychiatrist so I guess actually the the really my interest uh, is uh, well back to the 90s yeah so you've been practicing as a psychiatrist for almost 30 years is that roughly or no 20 20 20 years uh, yeah 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 20 years wow yeah and it's interesting I guess when you do one-to-one -one therapy with people you must as I say like learn so much about yourself um, what's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself during your journey on, on you know, being a um, psychiatrist? I think it's to give people room uh, to be critical to what you hear and uh, to set up limits, uh, but most of all, trying to have a good chemistry uh, with the person that you talk to. Uh, you can be a very uh, good doctor, you can be a very good psychologist, but if you don't have empathy, if you don't sort mm. of uh, know a little bit about whom you're talking to, then I don't think it works. That's really interesting. So I interviewed a psychologist and he was saying that everything happens in the empathy stage. And he's a big fan of um, reflective listening mm. as a form of demonstrating empathy with people. Mm. How do you go about creating that bond with people as empathy is so important between, you know, when you're trying to help someone? Asking people questions about not only their symptoms, but also about their life and knowing what they do, knowing what their family situation is, uh, and of course, being general uh, interest in their problem. Because if you're fake, if you uh, try not to understand them or try to be like, uh, show fake empathy, then I think that most people, they will see through you and then you don't sound, uh, you're not genuine and people look right through that. So you actually have to genuinely care about the person that you're speaking to. And if you if you don't, then people can see through it. So have you, have you had times then in your, your journey from starting out till now where you were working with someone and for some reason, you, you not that you didn't care, but you couldn't connect with them? 
Yeah, I mean, you disagree with your patients from time to time, uh, even though you try to explain to people what the best solution for them would be, then sometimes the patients say, well, I disagree. And okay. in most cases, then we have to have a discussion about that. Uh, a typical situation for a psychiatrist is because we can prescribe drugs. If I see a patient who's deeply depressed and psychotherapy is not working, then I would suggest try to take medication. But some patients, they resist to that. Um, and uh, then uh, that's it. And sometimes the patient says, well, uh, I don't want you to be my doctor. So can you talk about the ethics then of um, prescribing medication for some of your patients? I guess one of the questions which I've been asked to ask you is that um, perhaps there's too too many people prescribing too many drugs for general anxiety. Um, what are your what are your thoughts? Because obviously you prescribe medicine for mm. people so, and you can see, you, you know, you have an informed opinion. I think that uh, you're right that some patients uh, are prescribed medications that they do not need and some patients should have prescribed medication. They're in need of treatment. Uh, and uh, that's why I think it's important for psychiatrists to uh, update them on uh, what's new. They need to go to international conferences like I do a couple of times a year to get updated. They need to read the literature and uh, find out, uh, well, has anything changed? And in uh, most countries, also in the UK, the authorities, they have like guidelines for psychiatrists uh, that really states uh, not in detail how you should treat the patient, but overall what is good medical practice. Okay. And I think it's very important to follow these guidelines. Yeah. If you do that, then I think you can look your patient into your, uh, to the eye and say, well, I really want to do the best for you. You may not disagree and uh, that's yeah. it. So for you then, it's about being up to date making sure that your knowledge is really at the cutting edge to make sure that you're able to help people as best as possible at that, that time. Exactly, because yeah. I mean, if I see a doctor, which I do once in a while, yeah. if I go to a restaurant, if I uh, buy a car, then I also expect uh, good stuff okay. and quality. And I think that the patient should also expect quality when they see a psychiatrist or any other medical doctor. So when you, when you talk about um, giving people drugs, is it, I mean... Are you looking at giving people drugs long term or are you more giving um, the drugs for the shorter period of time to help them relax and then work on other stuff during that period? Or is it really a mix of both? It depends on what disease we're treating. If, you do, if you're treating what we call more, um, uh, more serious mental disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, then many of these patients, they need medication for many years. Okay. On the other hand, if you treat like an anxiety disorder or depression, we know from uh, guidelines and from uh, uh, medical studies that some of them, they can actually, by using psychotherapy, cognitive therapy, yeah. for for instance, uh, they can be so good that they, on the long-term basis, don't need medication. We also see that in obsessive-compulsive disorder, where okay. people, they have uh, obsessive thoughts or doing checking things all the time. Uh, if we combine uh, medication with cognitive therapy, that can actually result in not needing medication after maybe half a year. Could you talk about what cognitive... Is it cognitive behavioral therapy? Could you, yeah, exactly. Could you yeah. explain what that is? That is really changing your habits. Uh, okay. It's really uh, teaching uh, the patient to look for alternative solutions. For instance, if you suffer from a depression, uh, your thought may say to you, okay, if there's a problem, it's because of me, I did something wrong. And then you try to teach the patient, well, is that really uh, correct? It could be correct, but could you tell me, could you look for alternatives? Well, maybe I could, maybe it could be this and this and this. And by using this method of uh, 
learning the patient to think in an alternative way. And that can actually help them in not blaming themselves. And giving medication at the same time also uh, alleviates the depressive symptoms. So therapy and uh, medication for me really goes hand in hand. It's not like a competition, what is the best. I mm-hmm. think that we really should be very aware that very often patients, they need both. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So you're saying that if you can reframe or someone can reframe the way they're looking at a situation, that allows them an alternative perspective, which can perhaps stop them being depressed or anxious? Exactly, exactly. That's what we're hoping for. Uh, But then we also have to say that uh, patients are very different. Humans are very different. Some humans, they they are very good. They very easily, they catch sort of uh, what the therapy is about. And for others, it can be very difficult to sort of reframe or reschedule their way of thinking. So the outcome also depends on uh, how much insight you have and how good you are at uh, sort of handling psychological issues. How good are you at handling psychological issues <laughs> with, well, with, with yourself? Uh, so, so if we cast back from, you uh, know, before mm. you went into um, psychotherapy, no, uh, what is it, uh, psychiatry, Psych- yeah. to now, yeah. are you any better at managing your own emotions and, and ways of thinking? I am better, but I'm not perfect. Okay. Um, what, are, what are some of the things that you can do better now that you couldn't do before from what you've learned? Be more patient. Okay. Uh, sometimes I tend to be a little bit irritable if okay. things take time. <laughs> yeah. uh, I definitely need to work on that and I uh, constantly do that. Uh, I also need to work uh, more on being uh, very uh, direct but not too direct. Okay. Uh, and that's really a balance because uh, I think in the older days, if you met me like 10 years ago, I would be much more in your face okay. yeah, than yeah, I am yeah, now. Yeah. Maybe that's also because I'm older. Mm. So yeah, and I think uh, that goes for psychiatrists, that goes for everybody. Everyone, if a person believes that he or she is perfect, then I always say, then you really have a problem. Yeah. So what I'm getting here is that your perfectionist tendencies have gone down over the years because it, it seems to me like you were quite um, everything had to be perfect, which is mm. why you're impatient. Whereas nowadays you're more relaxed about the perfection. I still want to be perfect. Uh, <laughs> you still want to be. Yeah, but I know but, I know that I will never be, be okay. perfect. But I think yeah. it's uh, it's very important to have this drive to do better and say, well, I know that I believe I'm a good doctor, but I can always improve because otherwise I become a static person. Uh, the same I do like leadership trainings uh, for, uh, for, for people who are either leaders who would like to become leaders. And I always say, you know, the best leader looks around and look who could be the next leader. Yeah. Uh, and if you feel that you're too perfect, if you feel that, uh, oh my God, I was made by God for for <laughs> everyone. I mean, some people really have this notion, even though they might not phrase it mm. as directly as I do now, then I think they have a huge psychological problem. It's really about being a little bit humble. Is this moving on to narcissism and psychopath territory, what you're discussing? It sounds to me like quite narcissistic tendencies. Exactly. I mean, uh, I often get the question, is this society becoming more and more narcissistic uh, with reality shows, with social media, with yeah. selfies? And, uh, and to some extent, I think it is. Uh, and uh, narcissism can be what we call good narcissism okay. because people who don't believe in anything in themselves, they have a problem. But if you ah. believe that you uh, need special special treatment, that you uh, are always better and deserve special treatment, then you have a huge problem. So I was was reading in your book, um, if I got the understanding correctly, that narcissism is based on an insecurity. 
as opposed to psychopaths who lack empathy. Yeah, that's at least one of the many theories on narcissism. It's okay. a, psych- a psychotherapeutical theory that okay. in order to hide that you really are very insecure, you try sort of to be, uh, to tell the world that I'm better than you are, I'm uh, more famous than you are, okay. I'm more qualified than you are, I'm better looking than you are. Many narcissists are very vain. Uh, so uh, that is one of the theories uh, when it comes to narcissism. Do you believe that everyone has narcissistic traits within them? Most people have, and it's also necessary in order to survive. Okay. Uh, let's say that you do an exam at school. Uh, you have to have self-confidence. You have to uh, say to yourself, uh, okay, I'm doing my math uh, exam now. I'm going to show them what I'm worth, what I know, uh, because I can. That is a good uh, way of, of believing in yourself. Mm, but if, uh, but yeah. if a narcissist is uh, constantly being uh, dictating people, being very difficult, uh, demanding uh, all sorts of things, like being a prima donna, then it's what I call bad narcissism. So there's a key distinction then between a healthy level of narcissism, because we're led to believe that narcissism is bad. And actually hearing you say those words makes a lot of sense. So it's really talking about healthy levels of narcissism. So it's okay if that gives you confidence, but if it's too much and you turn into a prima donna, then it becomes unhealthy. Exactly. And yeah. if you look at the uh, companies who have these prima donnas uh, employed, I mean, it could be a very, a very difficult uh, to, to handle from a leadership perspective. Because let's say the prima donna is very good at what he or she is doing. Let's okay. say you have an advertising uh, company and the ads that the prima donna does, they're just better. Your customers are just more satisfied with this. At the same time, you have a whole group of people and the prima donna uh, always wants you to promote him, to give him or her uh, the most special assignments, the nice business trips and so on. Then you end up in, should I fire him and lose his abilities or should I try sort of to uh, fit him into uh, the crowd? So that could be a, a very interesting leadership dilemma. You see this a lot in uh, sports teams where you mm-hmm. have the one star as the most yeah. narcissistic. Yeah. yeah, because they know that they're the best. Yeah. So how, how do you, obviously you do courses in this, how do you manage someone who has high levels of narcissism? Is there specific ways that you go about managing them? Uh, you can do it in different ways, but one way could be, you mentioned a football team. I mean, uh, I like Cristiano Ronaldo a lot. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he knows he's a star. Yeah. Uh, and I've never met Ronaldo, but if I should coach him, then I should say, well, you, you know you're a star. And we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how you as a star uh, make your best ways around and get most friends, get most people who like you because nobody like uh, to live in a society okay. where people don't like you. So that could be sort of uh, the way to entice yeah. the star into uh, changing behaviors. So you, you're a fan of influencing people's behaviors um, by asking them different types of questions as opposed to trying dictate dictating to them how to change. Mm. Because this is a a big bone of contention, actually, whether influence is better or persuasion is better. And I'm on the side of the coin where I believe influence is better. I think Mm. if you ask the right questions and you connect with someone, you can influence their thoughts and behavior Mm. better. What's your experiences of that? Or is there no distinction between, between them for you? 
I think you should do both, really. I mean, okay. let's say you're in politics and you have all these uh, spin doctors, the modern word, yeah. uh, who people <laughs> who really try to change the politicians' yeah. uh, uh, way of thinking, way of behaving, way of voting, yeah. uh, and also trying to influence the people who vote for them. Yeah. Uh, and these spin doctors, if they do it in the right way, then they can be extremely powerful and not necessarily psychopathic or in yeah. any way uh, problematic, but they can also be psychopathic and problematic. So a spin doctor mm. also needs to really, uh, again, be a little bit humble, but also believing in himself and listen yeah. to other people. Because if you do not listen, then you end up being uh, making mistakes. So how do people get better at listening? Because, again, I... You know, I've become better at listening through doing interviews, mm. um, through teaching communication skills, through mm. meeting other people that are just expert communicators mm. and you see what they're doing. But for the average person who, you know, they're just not very good at listening. No. <laughs> no. Is there is there specific ways that you can get better at it or is it literally just you have to focus on it and it's, uh, you know. First of all, you have to ask yourself the question, how do I deal with feedback? We all love to get great feedback, but sometimes we do not get great feedback. And uh, I think you should try to thrive on when you're not uh, getting great feedback and really try to get into it. What was it that people uh, actually were criticizing? Of course, it could be something that is very unreasonable, but it's not that all the time. I also sometimes get uh, negative feedback okay. and I really try to learn from that, mm. even though, of course, uh, being a little bit narcissistic or maybe even very narcissistic, I love being uh, receiving good <laughs> feedback. Yeah, Everybody yeah. does. Yeah, of course. But really, that's the first step in order to improve uh your way of dealing with people is really to try to tolerate and learn from negative feedback. That's a really good point. So you found in your life that since you've been more open to listening to the negative feedback, you've become a better listener all round. Definitely. Yeah. And also, if I am criticized in, a, in my opinion, unfair way, I tolerate it much better. Okay. Uh, this thing about, you know, leaving the, if it's, if it's like a professional level, leaving my office in the afternoon, really taking my psychiatrist hat off and trying not to give me a sleepless night because I was criticized in, a, in an unfair way. Mm. And the same in my private life, if my friends or my partner in any way uh, are criticizing me, then uh, trying, you know, to, to listen to the criticism. Uh, but if it's really unfair not try uh, to uh, ruin my day mm. so how, how much does the, the, the psychology of fairness play into this because I think we all have a different um, view on what's fair mm. but none of us want something that's unfair no um, do you see a lot of that where um, a lot of your patients think that life's unfair I do. And sometimes I must say that some people, they have an unfair life. Okay. I mean, <laughs> so, they, so they are right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. I, I, don't, I don't believe in destiny or anything, but, okay. but I must say, having uh, been a doctor since 1993, I mean, you just sometimes see some patients where you think, oh my God, uh, they just have cancer. Now they have a depression. Uh, his wife just left him and he has to sell his house and okay. uh, his children doesn't want to speak with him. I mean, how bad can it get? Mm. Uh, so we see that as doctors, and that's also where coming back to empathy. Mm. Uh, in order to help such a person, you have to, of course, to say, I cannot solve your financial issues. I cannot mm. change the way of your uh, children that doesn't want, don't want to talk to you. I cannot uh, get your wife back to you. But what I can do is that I can help you in uh, dealing with it in a better way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how much credence do you give just the fact that someone understands you in their rehabilitation. Would you say that's the first step? If someone truly understands how you feel, that in itself is almost cathartic enough to create a change. 
Exactly. I mean, if, if, if you don't understand the problem, if you don't understand the person, uh, then you are not able to help the person. Mm. And that's also why uh, I think a very important uh, training issue for psychiatrists is really not to, we always, you know, uh, uh, people say, say we p- put people into boxes, okay. uh, which sometimes is true and sometimes is not. But you have to have, when you see a patient, you have to uh, quite quickly to have an understanding, okay, uh, he or she has this kind of personality, he or she has this kind of problems and uh, talking to her or him, uh, she wants it in a specific way. Uh, because if you don't quite quickly get that, then you spend a lot of time of finding out and you also tend to uh, risk that the patient will see you as unprofessional do you find that diagnosing people that quickly um, goes against what other psychiatrists do do they prefer to spend more time doing it or a psychiatrist generally let's try and label this as quickly as possible and deal with it I wouldn't say that uh, I diagnose very quickly but what I always have is what I call like a working diagnosis okay Uh, so I always have an idea and if the patient asks me what's wrong with me I uh, mostly I say well I cannot say for sure but after having talked to you, uh, the thoughts in my mind are, it could be this, it could be that. Okay. And I think that's a very th- uh, right way of doing it because, mm. I mean, uh, if you're paying a, a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist uh, money, if, or even mm. if you're not paying, if the state is paying, then you have the right to have some sort of um, hypothesis of mm. what could be wrong with you. You don't yeah. want the doctor in blind no. uh, looking for all yeah. sorts of uh, diseases. Well, absolutely. And I guess if you're a, a a patient and you ask your therapist what's wrong with you and they say I'm not sure yet I mean that doesn't breed confidence does it so I can see the value of a working hypothesis mm. which is subject to change yeah yeah that that makes a lot of sense so if we if we just move over slightly to um, defining what a psychopath is mm. and the difference between that and a narcissist or that and the high level of narcissism because when even when I read your book there was still a slight bit of confusion in my mm. mind on the differences yeah, yeah. yeah. It can also be very difficult because in some ways psychopaths and narcissists are alike. Mm. In others, they are not. Uh, If you take empathy, then uh, a very very distinct symptom uh, about psychopaths is that they lack empathy. They don't care about other people's feelings. Uh, In that way, they could share some with uh, narcissists. But if you look at, for instance, uh, this uh, drive to have appraisal and have uh, people liking you, the psychopath, they really do not care. But that is really sort of the petrol for the narcissist. Without adoration, without appreciation, Mm. then life is nothing. And that sometimes drives the narcissist to become very diligent, to become really a hard worker. But the, uh, the psychopath, he's very lazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. can he cheat uh, at school? Can yeah, yeah. he uh, try to uh, to fool you? He'll do it. So there you see that some of the symptoms are alike. Yeah. Others are very different. So they're, they're both kind of about getting the result, but psychopaths are more, what's the easiest, simplest way of doing this? And whereas um, narcissists are more like, I really care how people perceive that I'm Mm. going about doing this. So for a narcissist, if they're perceived to be lazy, would that be one of the worst things for a narcissist? Exactly. Or if uh, if they used to be famous and suddenly they're not famous anymore, if they used to to be rich and suddenly they go bankrupt, it's it's so embarrassing for a narcissist. Mm. A true narcissist would say, oh my God, 
uh, what about my family? What about my children? We have to move out of this area because this is so embarrassing. And sometimes they even kill themselves. Uh, A psychopath that suddenly goes bankrupt, he would just say, okay, you know what? I'll just do a different company in my wife's name so the bank uh, doesn't get to me. And that's that's fine. So in that respect, you see the psychopath has a much easier life. I was going to say, is is there a... Is there a value in being a psychopath? Yeah, definitely. I mean, life becomes much more easy because another uh, trait of being a psychopath is that you never have bad conscience. If I tell you a lie, uh, I don't care. Uh, Normal people, we get bad conscience because everybody lies once in a while, uh, but a psychopath doesn't care. So, and if they're caught out? What do they do? Just talk their way around? around that it? could be one solution or they could just deny it, yeah. uh, try to argue with you or sometimes they just leave. So are these psychopaths generally then, are they socially very good? It depends. Okay. Um, in the US, you have this distinction between a sociopath and a true psychopath. Let's, could you distinguish the difference between those? Because yeah. that's another two terms that I'm sure I exactly. don't know the difference either. <laughs> yeah. The short version is really that the true psychopath, he's the one that on the surface is very well integrated in, into society. Uh, he may be married or she may be married. They may have children. Uh, he may have a good job. So on the surface, everybody looks uh, fine. Okay. But his traits are just like any other psychopath. The sociopath, on the other hand, is very visible in society. Uh, he's always into crime. He's caught by the police. He takes drugs. He cannot uh, have a, f- a stable family. So he's always, you know, on the surface. But the true psychopath is underneath the surface. And sometimes the true psychopath, from an intelligent point of view, mm. is also more intelligent. And that's yeah. why these uh, psychopaths who dress up in suits, yeah, not yeah. that I should comment on your <laughs> uh, nice suit today, uh, can be much more dangerous because they're much more difficult to spot. Of course they are. Yeah, because they're blending in. So there's almost like they see the value in not being on the front, being in the background so they can observe things better. Exactly. Sociopaths, is that um, linked with insecurity? Can they feel empathy? What's the differentiator on that on that vein from that and a psychopath? Uh Normally, sociopaths, they don't feel empathy. That's also why okay. when they commit crimes, it can be very ca- very, very callous crimes. Okay. Uh, some of these uh, serial killers that you've heard about, you read about in the newspapers, yep. uh, they are really sociopaths because they don't feel what they are doing. Okay. Uh, there's actually been many studies, uh, brain uh, studies of uh, psychopaths, uh, where they have tried to show pictures that usually would um, uh, give you like a, a happy moment or a sad moment. It could be pictures of uh, people who are tortured the people who are in love yeah. and then they have seen how much activation is there in the frontal part of the brain yeah. and the psychopaths they get activated much much less than normal people meaning wow. that we can actually now see on a brain scan their lack of empathy wow so that must illuminate a lot of the uh, a lot of the ideas before that because you can actually scientifically prove it as well now Exactly. So yeah. we know uh, we also made, made different kinds of trials with the uh, psychopath behavior and we can see there are distinct differences yeah. between uh, psychopaths uh, and normal individuals. So I'm not quite sure I followed on the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. 
Is is the difference the fact that a sociopath is more socially active, more at the front of what's going on, whereas a psychopath is more likely to be in the background? You can say that, yeah, because the psychopath, the true psychopath, uh, is so clever that he or she knows how not to get caught. Okay. Uh, and again, if you have like a good position in society, if you're trusted, if you have money uh, and power, then it's much more easy for you to hide. The mm. sociopath doesn't have anything. He lives uh, on the lower part of the society. Okay. Uh, and yeah. uh, he's so visible and he is always in, into problems with the police. So that makes a lot of sense. So both psychopaths and sociopaths are likely to be breaking the law. Exactly. But we're talking about blue collar crime and white collar crime. Okay. So what would be the difference between blue collar crime and white collar crime? The sociopath's more likely to do the blue collar crime? Exactly. Um, He's yeah. more likely to rub your back yep. uh, or to get into a fight with you at the local pub. Okay. <laughs> uh, the white collar crime, he would uh, sell you a house that somebody else owns. Uh, so okay. you end up with no, no house <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. he'll take all the money. Okay. Or, so, or he will uh, uh, do money laundry, uh, offshore activities and things like that. So there's more like, there's more, um, I'm trying to think of the word, it's more callous being a psychopath because it's more, there's more deeper levels of mistrust, lying, cheating, intelligence of getting what you want and not really caring about anyone else. Exactly. And sometimes, and that's very interesting with psychopaths, is that they get turned on by it. It can really be extremely exciting, uh, cheating you, lying to you. Really? Yeah, they really, some of them, they thrive on it because it's part of the game. And if they get away with it once, then suddenly they will try something else. So they have this volume that they can just turn up. So if they have treated you, che uh, cheated you of a house, then they will maybe try to, uh, to do even more crime. Wow. Uh, so they really get turned on by their own bad behavior. So they, they, they lack empathy, but they almost have a heightened sense of turning people over or getting one over on someone excites them. Exactly. So what they lack in empathy, they, they make up in... Is there, a, is there a term for that feeling that they have doing it or is it... Well, it's sadistic. It's sadistic, uh, okay. It's, 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 some of them are very sadistic yeah. and they love to see you suffer. And uh, if you show uh, signs of weakness, then uh, they hit like a cobra. Uh, and they love, or you can use another metaphor, you can say that it's like the cat playing with the mouse. Really? Uh, and they love that. If you're weak, if you uh, uh, accept their domination because they love to dominate, uh, then you can end up like the poor mouse being chased by the cat. And what happens when two of them clash? Is this what we, hap is this what we see happen in high-level business meetings if, with big deals on the table. Exactly. I mean, I often get the question, can two psychopaths live together? Mm. They can if they got something that each other wants. Let's say one is mm. good looking and the other one is rich. Okay. Uh, that can work for a while, mm. but it is a very uh, sort of uh, fragile uh, relationship. Yeah. Uh, or let's say one is in politics and has a lot of money. The other one, uh, uh, the other one doesn't, but uh, has something else mm. like uh, is known in the media. That can also be a, a, a relation that is uh, supportable. So if it's beneficial to both of them, then they can have maintain a relationship. Exactly. But as soon as one part uh, doesn't believe that this is beneficial uh, in, anymore, then he or she ditches you. Really? Very yeah. quickly? Yeah. And I'm assuming then like psychopaths are more likely to be at the higher levels of society in, in, the, in white collar, it's, you know, in going around and being right at the top of their game. 
Um, that's true. Uh, that would also be my assumption. Um, there was a book written about that, but I think that the scientific basis for that is was very weak. Uh, because again, if I had my office in Copenhagen and said to all the business leaders, please come and do a psychopathy test, test with Henrik Day Paulsen, I don't think that many will show up. Yeah, okay. So it's difficult <laughs> to get the statistics. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. But, ha- but having said that, I think that uh, many psychopaths, they love domination. They love to lead. Uh, so they will seek um, positions where that is possible. Okay. And I'm not saying that all leaders, uh, all politicians are psychopaths because okay. on a long-term basis, you cannot get a worse leader than a psychopath because he or she may, on the surface, be very good at you know at firing people, at saying, you no, know, we have a business to run, but they're not likable. Mm. And at least in a UK perspective, in a Danish perspective, in a Western European perspective, I don't believe that you, on a long-term basis, can become mm. a good leader if people don't like you yeah. and don't respect you. Yeah. If you do this management by fear, uh, I think that on a long-term basis, you will lose the best workers. You may end up, ha- up having people working for you, but you wouldn't have the cream of the crowd because yeah. they will seek someone else to work for. What would be a better management strategy then to, to keep people longer term? So rather than like leading by authority, what's a better management style to keep people happy and to be like longer term? To uh, make them have a voice, listen to people, but also to say, well, at the end of the day, I decide. But if people, they uh, perceive that they have uh, someone who actually respects them, uh, that helps a lot. And also giving them assignments uh, that are interesting, and that's Mm. not always possible, but then try to mix it and say, well, I know that this assignment is not really your favorite, but you know what, I'll find something else uh, next week for you. Uh, Just by saying that, acknowledging that you know that what you're going to do now is actually quite boring, that actually uh, makes people like you. And that uh, also results on a long-term basis in you getting the best employees Mm. and uh, your competitor uh, are stuck with the next best. Yeah, so it's definitely about empathy then, isn't it? It's, it's having that level of empathy, yeah. Exactly, I mean, yeah. I mean that's that we're coming back to empathy all the time. Yeah, Why is are. that? Because it is so important yeah. uh, that the chemistry between two people are really there. So is there situations then where, um, you know, high-level people have a right-hand man or woman mm. who is more the, the empathetic person? So mm. you, you see the business leader who's the psychopath and then you have high levels of empathy with the people around mm. him. Is that something that you see? Yeah, like bad cop, good cop. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, you have the person who can have no emotional attachment and yeah. make the right call. Yeah. But you have someone who actually can implement it with empathy. Yeah. yeah. It can be a quite, uh, how should I say, a quite effective setup, but it can yeah. also be a very dangerous one. Uh, because the, the good cop uh, can, of course, sell to you, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk to him okay. and I'm going to fix it. And then she goes in and she fixes it and she comes out. It's okay now. Yeah. Uh, that can work, but uh, that still leaves this very psychopathic leader yeah, as someone okay. that you cannot reach, almost mm. like a king mm. uh, or like an emperor. Mm. And I, I think that in at least in modern leadership in the Western world, uh, we're through with dictators. We're through with you know uh, uh, people accepting yeah. emperors unless they really want something for you. Okay. So one of the things that, that stood out was when I was uh, when I was reading your book. We spoke, there was something called the DSM-5 system. And that is the way of assessing whether you are a psychopath. Now, I have to own up here. When I read that, Mm. I I was reading it thinking, oh my God, I'm a psychopath. (laughs) Because I was reading through some of the traits and I was thinking, I've got some of these. And then I got to the end and it Mm. said, you have to have a certain amount of these to be classified. (laughs) But I was thinking, you know, if anyone read this, we all have these traits. 
So it's more about if you've got a, a wide variety of them that you are termed as a psychopath. Exactly, and if you, in all um, aspects of life, life really show them. Okay. Uh, because it's it's clear. Let's say that you were hired uh, to a British company that were almost uh, was bankrupt, and you okay. could see that there were loads of people doing nothing, and you really needed to fire some of them. Uh, then it could be a very uh, good thing to fire them. But if you just text them and say you're fired, okay. <laughs> uh, that's not very uh, empathetic. Yeah. You really have to say, well, uh, explain to people why you have to do it. Okay. Uh, a true psychopath may even enjoy firing people, may even enjoy texting people, wow. because it's a little bit sadistic to do that. Yes. Uh, but if you uh, show a different side, then not all, everybody that you fire may like you, yeah. but I think uh, most people will understand, well, this, this is actually what you are asked to do. Yeah, definitely. So, could we? Um, could you just talk about some of the the um, parts of the DSM five system? Because I know that there's a difference between America and Europe on how they on how they yeah. um, classify a psychopath. But yeah. what are some of the main like traits within that system? Yeah, um, the American system DSM uh, is a little bit different than the European IC, ICD, which is an international classification of diseases. Okay. But when it comes to psychopathy, I mean, the differences are really very small. Okay. Uh, they still are, agree on uh, the lack of empathy. Empathy. They agree on that psychopaths are very aggressive, either verbally or sometimes even physically. They ag agree on they don't comply with the rules and love to break them. Uh, they uh, agree agree on they have this um, uh, excitement feeling that they want things to be dangerous and exciting and they thrive on this and also agree uh, that uh, many psychopaths also uh, gets into uh, either substance abuse or alcohol abuse okay. uh, probably also a part of this thriving for uh, uh, excitement uh, and easy solutions so can we talk about the aggression part of that? Mm. Why why have they got high levels of aggression? Is it because they, they can't manage that part of, of their brain like most people? Or is it because they're, they can't control the impatience of the world and they're just aggressive to get what they want? How does that... Yeah, well, you actually just said it. It was very correctly phrased that uh, the theories, we also have some proof that uh, some psychopaths in their brain, they have problems uh, between uh, the communication of the frontal part of the brain, okay. uh, which is sort of the part of the brain that uh, uh, says no to you and say, no, this is not really what you should do. And then uh, the deeper part of the brain where, for instance, aggression is. So let's say that you're extremely aggressive uh, about me right now, then you okay. don't hit me. The reason why I don't hit me is because the frontal part of your brain says yep. well doing an interview with a foreign psychiatrist <laughs> yeah. maybe not the best way because okay. it can be put on on air uh, and you can thank the frontal part of the brain that you actually know how to control your aggression wow. and that is something that uh, many psychopaths uh, have huge problems in doing so is this the frontal part of your brain that's the bit that was most recently developed in evolutionary mm. terms yeah so it's the part that most animals don't have or all other animals don't have yeah, so okay. the very clever animals have a little bit of it. Okay. Uh, but uh, what we uh, what we call the reptile brain, okay, yeah. we share with yeah. the animals. And that's where we have these basic feelings like aggression, like sleep, like drive for sex, like uh, hunger, all these things that we yeah. share with the animals. But the reason why we are so involved is uh, we can thank the frontal part of the brain for that because that is really what uh, makes the difference between a dolphin and a human being. So talking... Um outside of, of, of psychopaths here and, and sociopaths and narcissism, do people generally struggle to, to maintain the balance of what you just described? Because I'm assuming the an 
anxiety that most people feel or the depression comes from the the reptilian brain the flight yeah. or fight or freeze yeah. part of it so on a on a day-to-day level i'd imagine most people have some form of anxiety because mm. that's the way we're we're all like built is it our coping mechanisms internally that allow us to control that or is it way more complicated than that well first of all anxiety is necessary to survive uh, the animals have it and we have it let's say that you're a, a gazelle on the savannah in africa and you don't get afraid when you see a lion you end up uh, being yeah, eaten you're gone <laughs> yeah exactly and if we have a cobra snake coming in the studio right now it would be very practical that we run away because okay. otherwise we'll be bitten yeah uh, but what happens with people who suffer from anxiety is that the center in the brain sort of become hypersensitive to things that shouldn't uh, provoke anxiety which could okay. be like being in an elevator uh, or uh, walking down uh, central London when it's dark uh, things like that uh, can provoke anxiety in people who have a part of the brain it could be a part of the amygdala yep. uh, that really uh, sort of controls anxiety so to say it very simple uh, people who suffer from uh, anxiety disorders they have a part of the brain that is too sensitive yep. and that's what medication and therapy can change are we going into habit formation here is in the stimulus is walking into the lift and then you feel anxious and then you get into the habit of that thought mm. that you feel like anxious and worried in that area so yeah. is a lot of this changing thinking habits and actual it, physical habits yeah. it is at uh, the psychological part of treating anxiety is also uh, trying to do things that you really do not want to do let's say that uh, you're afraid of uh, of getting into the water but would like to uh, to learn how to swim then at some point you need to get to into the water let's yeah. say you cannot uh, uh, ride a bus well then we have to teach the patient well you need to do one bus stop and then you're allowed to get off and then if that's okay then you can try two and three and four bus stops and if they physically can't do that then you get them to imagine it in their mind first as the first step. Exactly. And then you can use medication. For instance, certain antidepressants uh, work very well on anxiety. So that can be the first step in order to uh, try to do the first bus step. Okay. The, the first bus step. Yeah, yeah. So are there, talking about like the, the, the medication, are there um, more natural ways without medication, such as diet, sleep, meditation, exercise? Are these the world's natural antidepressants or is it different well from a medical perspective in order for a a doctor to uh, to prescribe any treatment we need to have what we call randomized controlled studies which means that we have to have scientific proof that let's say uh, exercise uh, is better than not exercising so we have to randomize uh, two groups of patients one who do exercise and one who who doesn't do exercise and see uh, which one is better and what you just mentioned like meditation and so on unfortunately we don't yet have uh, the same uh, robust scientific documentation as we have for uh, for medication and uh, cognitive therapy Uh, but maybe in the future uh, it can come but when that has been said uh, i think that eating well sleeping well it's logical uh, that that will help because the opposite not sleeping and and eating burgers all the time i mean can we talk about the what you just said there the 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 studies and, and things like that you know first of all can we trust the scientific studies because, you know, I was listening to um, a podcast by Daniel Kahneman recently, mm. who, who basically said that being able to replicate any study is highly unlikely. Mm. And he doesn't believe that you can trust most of the studies that, that go on. And obviously, we have to take into account that pharmaceutical companies are earning a hell of a lot of money out of it. So mm. they're going to be way more likely to do 
drug tests mm. that they can earn money from as opposed to saying yeah go and do stuff for free go mm. and meditate go and get some sleep go and do these things there's way more money in giving sleeping medication and, mm. and things like that what are your what are your views on this i actually worked in a big american pharmaceutical company uh, from 2005 to 2009 okay so i'm very aware of how they do the studies and uh, also all the okay. money that they earn but i must say that uh, my impression is that most pharmaceutical companies they actually work uh, quite ethical okay. there have been uh, scandals uh, which was uh, good they was revealed uh, but the most important thing is that if they do not follow these ethical rules and it's found out, then they're going to lose a lot of money. Okay. And being a professional business, yeah. they hate losing money. Yeah. And I would like uh, to, to just focus on one thing, which is AIDS. Uh, when I was a young uh, medical student in the 80s, I was doing infectious diseases in, uh, in Denmark, and I saw all these horrible, mainly men, who got all kinds of infections uh, because their immune system was really down because of AIDS. Thanks to the pharmaceutical company, now AIDS is not a disease yeah. that you die for, yeah. from. Uh, you need to take pills every day mm. or, or once a week. Uh, and we have to remember, we should thank the big pharmaceutical companies for that uh, before we sort of lo uh, yeah. lynch them and say, well, they just want money. Yes, of course they want money, uh, but they also want yeah. to help people. So you feel like that is an unfair representation. The few, the few companies that have had scandals over the past are not a fair representation of what's going on. And actually the movement now is way more ethical as time goes on. There's way more transparency. And you believe that most pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies are actually trying to help people. I do because they yeah. come up with with the new medication. Yeah. Not all medication are like you know uh, like penicillin okay. when that was invented. Uh, but uh, I think most people uh, can understand. Also, if you have cancer as an example, now we have these what we call biological uh, uh, compounds that helps cancer, that helps psoriasis. People with psoriasis now uh, don't need to take all that uh, the creams and medication that they did before, yeah. thanks to uh, drugs that actually help them. So I think mm. you're right that in my opinion it's a little bit unfair. Yeah. Uh, that you always are criticizing big pharma because yes they have done things wrong but i mean we're all humans yeah no that makes a lot of sense and obviously you have an informed opinion on this mm. um okay so one of the things this is just a little bit left field here but in one of the sections of the book you talked about the power of silence um mm. in one of the sections and saying that um it's an extremely powerful tool mm. being silent yeah could you just talk a bit more about that? Why is that? And how can perhaps people utilize that in their lives a little bit more? It's a very powerful uh, psychological instrument because most people uh, become very uh, uneasy if you don't get any response. Okay. Let's just say that uh, you're asking me a question and yeah. I didn't respond at all. And I respond at all. And uh, the only thing that I did, if you're asking me again, was repeating what you just said or maybe saying nothing. That is very uncomfortable. So most people, they will try, you know, to break the silence. And uh, then you can actually tell a lot from what they say when they break the silence. I wouldn't uh, say it's the most ethical way no. <laughs> of uh, using psychology. Uh, but since you ask, yes, it can be a very powerful weapon because very few people tolerate uh, too much silence. Yeah, I think we can all have situations where you speak to someone, you get a non-responsive response. It's, it's mm. very difficult to cope and to deal with that. And mm. I guess in such things like contract negotiations, that would definitely be a tool where people use it. Um, where they, they give a, a figure and then they just hold yeah. the silence. Yeah, because also people, uh, if, you keep, if you keep quiet, people will say, oh, what is he thinking? 
But if you blabble on, uh, then people may see you as a, a chatterbox, or someone that you know just uh, keeps on. But silence for some people, or for many people, I think, also uh, makes you think about what is he or she thinking about now? Is mm. she clever than me? Has she had, or had, uh, does he have uh, something that I don't have? Uh, does he know something that I don't know? Yeah. All these thoughts can make people very insecure, making being quiet a very powerful weapon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So even if you just pause a little bit before you respond mm. to people um i mean we all do this anyway when you're thinking mm. about something before yeah. you reply yeah. but actually recognizing also if someone's deliberately doing it to you mm. you can be more aware of it as well yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so one of the other um areas i want to talk about is you it's a psychological term known as splitting yeah which is people that see the world in, in black and white mm. i have to say that you know as i get older mm. i do see the world less in black and white mm. But I think most people when they're younger, perhaps do, or what's the easiest way of phrasing this? In the book, you you say that we use black or white thinking because we can't cope. And actually that's a way of being, it's either this or it's this. And it allows mm-hmm. us to cope with a wide variety of issues. So I'm assuming that there's some benefit in black and white thinking, mm-hmm. but there's also some problems with black and white thinking. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, to be a good therapist, to be a good human being, you need to be tolerant. You need to think about uh, not putting people into a box uh, right away and not putting the world into a box. If you take, like, for instance, some of these fanatic movements, it could be uh, uh, some of the religious movements, it could be ISIS uh, that recruit people who become terrorists. Often they recruit very young people uh, because uh, the younger you are, uh, it's the more easy it is to to uh, induce in you that uh, it's either them or us. Okay. Either they're enemies uh, yeah. or you're with us. And that is a very easy way of uh, coping with life. Yeah. So if you are a young person, if you're very insecure, you don't know what you want to do, and someone comes to you, maybe he's very charismatic, maybe he talks very well, maybe he has an interesting story to tell you, then you can actually make people do horrible things uh, in thinking black and white. Yeah. Mm. You can also see from a political point of view, all the polls, uh, how do young people vote? Yeah. Most of them, they uh, compared to like my age, they vote uh, either very left or very right, and then they they move into the middle. I'm not saying voting very left yeah, or yeah, voting okay. right is yeah, wrong, yeah. Uh, but I think that the reason why they do it uh, is because it's more radical. Yep. Uh, you can take the environmental movement that we have right now. I don't think we should uh, throw around plastic, but uh, some of the voices that we hear yeah. uh, become very, very sort of uh, short-sighted. Yeah. So this makes a lot of sense. Is black and white thinking ever good? Um, I don't think it is because I think that in order to understand the world, in order to understand other people, you need to see the whole picture. And if you uh, sort of have already uh, made the story before you interview the person, yeah. uh, then it's dangerous. Yeah. You see sometimes that yeah. in journalism, uh, that some journalists, uh, even though they would never mm. admit it, uh, they interview someone like Donald Trump, and yeah. I'm not that fond of Donald Trump myself, but uh, if you really hate the person, yeah. maybe the interview is not the best yeah. uh, objective interview you are doing yeah. because you don't want to see the whole picture. Maybe yeah. there was something that President Trump was, uh, was doing right mm. because I've never met someone who did everything wrong. Yeah, of course. It's interesting because, you know, when, when when I interview people, you can't have an agenda when you interview someone. Otherwise, the interview just goes in one mm. direction and, it, and it's wrong. So I completely take on board that. It makes a lot of sense. With regards to black and white thinking, obviously, that, that transgresses onto framing. Mm. And with some of the things that you've been mentioning during the interview, you're 
um, when you're doing therapy with people, you're trying to get them to look at the world differently. So you're trying to reframe mm. the situation. Now, framing is all around us, mm. around the world. And it's very difficult to not put a frame around anything. Mm. Can you offer some advice on how to do that? Would you say it's like search for more information and then the frame becomes wider? Mm. Or is there is there any psychological ways of going about that? I think that uh, in order to help people, then they, you should help them to frame their own life. Okay. Because some people, they would like, you know, to have the easy solution. Oh, you should do this, you should do this. I mean, let's say that uh, you and your wife are having huge problems and you ask me, should I divorce her? My answer to you would be, <laughs> well, uh, let's see if you can come up with whether you should divorce her yeah. or not. Because you are the one who should take the yeah. decision at the end of the day. But some patients, they uh, or some people, they would like to have the therapist to choose from them. That's dangerous territory for you as a therapist. Exactly, because yeah. if you're helping people, then they have to find out where the frame and uh, where the edges and how uh, and when should I jump, uh, jump out of the frame. Mm. So are you aware then of um, frames that are, are put onto society? Um, frames that are put onto you, even when someone's trying to sell you something on, on TV and things like this, are you ultra aware of the frame that they're using? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, just being a psychiatrist, I mean, uh, sometimes I meet people who uh, judge me from my profession. Uh, we have uh, these international meetings uh, in the US uh, once a year, and there are always demonstrations uh, from religious groups outside who uh, say, psychiatrists, we are sent from hell, we want to drug people and ah. uh, drug children and so on. And they don't, uh, they don't even know me, they don't know my opinions, but they judge me because I'm a psychiatrist. And you see that also in some societies with uh, mm. being a minority group, being black, being gay, being uh, whatever, that some people who do not know you they try to put you into a box and i really resent that do you think that's because it makes it easier for them to cope um one, one of my clients a few years ago um said to me that whenever he tells anyone what he does for a living they always simplify it when they repeat it back because they don't understand what it is do you think there's a certain amount of that people don't understand or they they don't want to give the time to thinking and it. it's very easy to read one sentence headline you know psychiatrists are giving out drugs to kids mm. and just that alone makes me feel like, hang on a minute, they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. But there's no informed opinion. Yeah. So it's almost like you feel unfairly judged. Exactly. And it, it's, it's always, uh, there will always be people looking for the easy solution, just reading the headlines or even, even worse that we have now with the social media, the fake news. Yeah. Uh, I was fooled the other day about a horrible story about President Emmanuel Macron in, 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 in France. I found out that uh, this was actually fake news. Wow. Uh, but if you're not uh, critical, if you don't take the time to go thorough, to yeah. look into the uh, to, to the substance, then I'm very afraid that we will end up just judging each other and calling each other's name, uh, calling each other names, mm. and not really trying to listen to what is it that uh, what's the message that you're trying to to pass on. I can see that you are a product of what you what you teach. You you really feel there's a, a value in understanding what someone else is doing. And it's, you know, judging people without proper understanding just creates a hell of a lot of problems. It does. And even yeah. as a psychiatrist, uh, I'm sometimes fooled myself. Yeah. If I see a patient, um, uh, not to brag or anything, but very often I can say to myself, uh, maybe it's the problem is this and this and this, and I'm, uh, I'm not always right, but I'm usually right. But sometimes I really get astonished and say, oh my God, Henrik, I didn't see that one yeah. coming. And in order not to be fooled, I also have to be a little bit reluctant uh, when I examine people and say, well, it could be different 
from what I actually mm. think it is. Yeah. And the only way to find out is by uh, listening to the person sitting in front of you. So even though you've done thousands of hours of therapy, mm. you still maintain an open-mindedness when you look at someone like, this is new, you haven't seen it before, and you need to really listen and tune into them. Yes, because if you don't, you should retire. Really? So there's, there's that much, you give that much credence to, to empathy and understanding of people's, it, on an individual basis? Yeah. Any doctor, whether he's a psychiatrist, dermatologist, or internist, or whatever, if you lose your uh, curiosity, if you lose your skepticism, if you lose your ability to listen and think in alternative ways, yes, I think you should retire, because then you don't help people, you become static, mm. uh, you become uh, an old person that should spend the rest of your life in your summer house somewhere. Do you find yourself resisting some things that you learn along the way so you have a, a strongly held belief and then you start to see evidence to suggest otherwise do you find yourself finding it difficult to let go of the older beliefs because they've served you so well over the years of course sometimes i uh, mm. i tr see myself uh, oh my god did i really say that did i really uh, write that i mean i've published several books in, in danish and if i think if i took the first book that i published There'll probably be some things that I would like to uh, to change. Yeah. Actually, I think that I I've sometimes when I look at some of my first books, I haven't actually read one of them again. And I think that's a psychological fear, <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of anxiety, that, uh, oh my God, uh, what do I find? So if I should do cognitive therapy with myself, yeah. I should use my summer holidays <laughs> to read yeah, one of my yeah, books. <laughs> so, uh, so even psychiatrists, you know, we try to avoid things. Yeah. So do, do you, as a psychiatrist, do you have to see a therapist yourself because you're a practicing psychiatrist or is that not the case? No, we don't need to do that. Uh, okay. Before uh, we, uh, we, we, we did that. And when we do our psychotherapy training in order to be uh, certified as a psychiatrist then we have to do one-to-one -one supervision okay so when i was a young doctor I when i was seeing patients uh, then each time i saw a patient i would see my supervisor and have a discussion with her and say he said this uh, what do you think about this and uh, get some feedback okay. uh, but w once we have the certificate at least in denmark i don't know how it is in other countries okay then we don't uh, we don't need to but of course i discuss difficult cases with some of my colleagues yeah, of course uh, and get their feedback uh, just like I do yeah. if I give medication because yeah. again a doctor who believes he knows everything yeah. should also retire absolutely so we're, we're coming um, towards the end of the interview mm. and obviously um, I asked you on the show today to talk about psychopaths mm. what are some of the ways in which um, you can a spot them and b deal with them mm. is it just a case of once you spot them like get out of there as quickly yeah. as possible yeah. or are there you know can they be useful to you or, or how does how does that work yeah the way to spot them is by what you have done reading my book the everyday psychopath that's why i wrote the everyday psychopath was in order to give people a quick uh, understanding what is a psychopath okay so when you know the traits when you know one, uh, what to look for then you can actually start to say well how can i deal with them okay uh, and dealing with the psychopath, uh, there's no easy solution. There's no quick fix here. Mm. Uh, you have to uh, learn to um, uh, spot them. And you also have to, and that's very important, to think about that if you apply your moral way of thinking to a psychopath and believe that everybody has the same moral values and you have, then you'll be fooled. Mm. And uh, yeah. a psychopath really has no respect for someone who's naive. Uh, I always say the best weapon for a psychopath is these people who do not want to acknowledge that they actually exist. Okay. 
So that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, you have to look at people without putting your morals onto that person. And once you do that, you can then really assess them properly. You can't assume they're going to follow by the same moral code that you are. No. And uh, some people, they are so naive. They don't want to really uh, look into the mirror and say, well, I'm actually married to a psychopath Mm. or my boss is actually a psychopath. Mm. Uh, I've had some people who have come to my talks or read read my book who became very angry with me uh, (laughs) because they say, no, 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 it's not true what you have uh, written. And I say, well, look around. I wish it wasn't. Yeah. But it really is. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, It's funny how you know, someone as successful as yourself still gets, you know, so much criticism and, and just the way that people look at psychiatry without really a proper understanding of it. It's just, it just makes me sad. I just think that mm. you're clearly doing a good thing. Mm. You're clearly open-minded. You're clearly doing as much research. You're at the cutting edge. You're going around promoting what you're doing. Mm. I just think what you're doing is great. And thank once you. again, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, if people wanted to grab a copy of this, it's available on Amazon. Yes, it is. And if they wanted to um, contact you directly, how would they go about doing that? Well, I have a web page. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's only in Danish. But okay. uh, my contact details are there. I'm going to have it updated in English very soon. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll share a link to your book and yeah. I'll also share a link to your Danish website so people can still exactly and. Uh, the publisher will also uh, if they contact the publisher they also have my information perfect lovely thanks very much for coming on today thanks for having me perfect